What's up, everybody? Welcome to the NFL Roadshow. On the Monday of Week 12, one game left tonight, Steelers-Colts. 15 games in the bag. No buys this week, so a lot of football for us to discuss and a couple of guests that will be joining us to do that. We've got Tashawn Reed from The Athletic, who was in Seattle for that crazy Raiders overtime win, and Thomas Dimitrov. Of course, you are familiar with him as the former Falcons general manager. He's also the current CEO of Sumer Sports, which I think I would describe as a roster optimization company. I'll be interested to see how he describes it. It is a company that uses technology and analytics to advise football teams about the best ways to optimize their rosters. We talked to Eric Eager, friend of the pod, about a month ago about that company. It's the company that he left PFF for, and I'm really excited to talk to Dimitrov today, particularly at this stage of the season, because there are probably, I don't know, 10 teams that feel like they are likely not going to the playoffs this year. And in those cities, this is the time of year when the conversation starts to pivot to the future. What do they need? What should they do down the stretch to put them in the best position to get what they need? Then there are the teams that are in the race, right? One of them is going to go get Odell, assuming that whole plane story gets sorted out. Did you guys hear this one? He got thrown off a plane yesterday in Miami, and the story's bizarre. So according to police, he fell asleep before takeoff. The airline tried to wake him up to put his seatbelt on, and it sounds like they had a hard time waking him up. So they turned around, they were taxiing, went back to the gate, successfully now woke him up, and then made him get off. In fact, they made everyone get off and then escorted him from the plane, did like a walk of shame in front of everyone. Somehow they took all the rest of the people off, it looks like, before him. Anyway, I don't know. They said they were concerned about his health when they couldn't wake him up, that they thought he might be sick and that he might get sicker during the five-hour flight. He says that they woke him up and told him that he had to get off and that he was like, why can't I just put my seatbelt on now? And they were like, nope, too late, get off. So bizarre, honestly. And I kind of think the weirdest part is that no one has stepped forward to say, hey, I witnessed this and this is what happened. Like one guy who was in a different cabin who says he didn't see anything, took a video of him deplaning. That's it. Like during COVID, when people wouldn't wear a mask on a plane, it felt like a lot of those incidents were captured on video, on a phone. Here we have one of the most famous and recognizable NFL players, and nobody records it or pays attention and then raises their hand to clarify what happened. So weird. Anyway, totally off subject, but a more positive plane story. To pass along, did you see that the Patriots sent UVA their plane, the team plane, to get the UVA football players to different funerals for their players, um, which I mean, that's a different podcast, how senseless and infuriating those murders were. But very cool of the Patriots to reach out and help with transportation since the funeral funerals were in three different states. Anyway, original point of the air travel tangent, OBJ. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about him this week. Where should he go? Will it be the Cowboys? Will it be the Bills? Will it be the Giants? I will ask Thomas his thoughts on that. I also want to ask about the Seahawks and what they should do with Geno if he continues to play the way he's been playing down the stretch. Should the Raiders pay Josh Jacobs? These are questions that we've already kind of tossed around here on the pod, but there's no doubt that his perspective would be unique on the subject. Does Dimitrov think that we will see Rodgers again this year? 
You guys saw him last night with the thumb and the ribs. According to ESPN's Rob Domovsky, he was having trouble breathing during the game and was afraid that he might have punctured a lung, but apparently x-rays showed that that wasn't the case. Now he's having more tests done today to see if his ribs are fractured because I guess they couldn't tell in the original x-rays. But frankly, he is beat up and they're out of the race. And Jordan Love looked kind of good. And I don't really hate the idea of Green Bay getting a look at him for the next few weeks. I mean, they got to find out about him at some point. And maybe if he plays well, they can trade him or I don't know. We'll ask Thomas because Roger's contract is massive and they're kind of tied to him and the dead cap numbers if they decide to do anything but start him or kind of cray. So Roger's one injury that we will be monitoring throughout the week. Uh, There are a few more to come out of Sunday. Elijah Mitchell might have a sprained MCL expected to be out a couple of weeks for the Niners. Travis Etienne, they think, is okay. He got rolled up on. They say he could have gone back in the game, but they chose to play it safe. Jets running back Michael Carter has a low ankle sprain. Robert Sala says he could potentially play as soon as this week. Darnell Mooney also has an ankle injury. NFL Network reporting that he could be out for the season. Bucks right tackle Tristan Wirfs has a high ankle sprain expected to miss three to four weeks. Dolphins left tackle Taron Armstead has a pec injury. They don't know how long he'll be out, but Ian Rappaport says it's not as bad as they'd originally feared, and he could be back soon. Allen Robinson's not coming back. He's out for the year because it's just been that kind of year for the Rams, who now have Van Jefferson, Tutu Atwell, and Ben Skronik at wide receiver to go with Bryce Perkins at quarterback and Kyron Williams at running back. I was talking to my brother today, Raider fan, and he was going through their schedule moving forward. You know, that one should be a win. That one should be a loss. That one's 50-50. He called the Rams 50-50. I was like, "Mm, if you guys are 50-50 against that roster, you guys are in trouble. I I did give him the Chargers as 50-50. I think that's fair. I was petrified yesterday when they lined up to go for two for the win at the end of the game, which was not my reaction when the Jaguars did the exact same thing earlier in the day against Baltimore. In that situation, I was like, yes, love it. Aggressive quarterbacks on a heater. Go get it. Chargers lined up to do it. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) because you just knew what the narrative would be afterward if they didn't get it about Staley, about Chargering, about Justin Herbert not being able to win a game for his team because he's just a social media quarterback. That alone was enough to stress me out in the moment. Just the thought of the segments that FS1 would put together if it didn't work, but it did. And it was glorious. And I apologize, Cardinals fans. Uh, This is not about you. It's about that guy in powder blue who made some of the most ridiculous throws again yesterday, having to fight for respect. And for the people who think that everything bad that happens to the Chargers is a reflection on him, and it's about my inability to deal with that kind of logic. Speaking of quarterbacks, though, and credit that they deserve, how about Mike White yesterday for New York? Three touchdowns and 315 passing yards. I raised my hand. I was wrong. I said that they should turn to Joe Flacco. I thought he was the guy in this situation. Mia culpa. Holy heck, Mike White. He looked great. A 149 passer rating. And how about this note from Andrew Siciliano via NFL Research? But Andrew tweeted it out. Sunday's win 
was the Jets' third game with 30-plus points and 450 yards of offense in the last four seasons. Three games with 30-plus points and 450 yards of offense in four years. And do you know who's been the quarterback for all three of those games? Mike freaking White. So good. I love a good underdog story. I love people proving people wrong, unless, of course, it results in a random touchdown that takes fantasy points away from someone on my team. But other than that, I love it. And that brings me to Josh Jacobs and the Raiders' overtime win in Seattle, which weirdly looked like a black and white game on our TVs, but I digress. It was the Raiders' first time winning consecutive games all season. I have mixed feelings, I think, about the way that they got there. I do not have mixed feelings about Josh Jacobs, though. Dude balled out. 303 scrimmage yards, the seventh most in the Super Bowl era. He scored 48 fantasy points, which holy heck, I hope you had him and or did not play against him. But 229 yards rushing on 33 attempts. 33! That's an insane 6.9 yards per. And... There's more. He also tied for the team lead in receiving yards with 74. And, of course, he scored the walk-off touchdown in overtime in the most dominant fashion on an 86-yard run. 77 of those yards were over expectation. That's the most on a single run by a running back in the last two years. And he reached the fastest speed of his career on that run at 20.43 miles per hour. And he did all of that on a bum calf. Remember, he was questionable coming into the game. Obviously, a lot of people had questions about him coming into the season, too. Now, he is the NFL's leading rusher by over 100 yards. He's the highest graded running back by PFF on the year. He has the most missed tackles forced. He is the second most explosive runs, or he has the most. You get what I'm saying. He's crushing it. And I think it's awesome. And I think it's fascinating, and I want to know more. So I called on my buddy Tashawn Reed, who covers the Raiders for The Athletic and who was kind enough to dip into a quiet place at the airport on his way back from Seattle so we could discuss. So let's break the huddle. Hurry up, let's go! Two on, two on, two. Ready? Tishon, first of all, I want to know what that locker room was like afterward and whether or not Josh Jacobs was just, like, completely gassed. Yeah, there was a lot of, you know, references to him needing to get the bag. Uh, you know, he did it on mm-hmm. one leg. You better write about it one leg, one leg, because he almost didn't play calf injury. People will forget about that in the moment. But, like, he was limping around there and in the locker room. So he was already hurting coming into it, especially afterwards. But, uh, I mean, it was a level of excitement that really, I mean, I guess to compare to last week when they had a, another walk-off over Tom Wynn um, against the Broncos. And so back-to-back, they've kind of had those jubilant, moments carry over from the field into the locker room and and you know given how the season started for the team they're still four and seven you know, like they're still like not in a good spot but they're they're enjoying the moments that they have and I think as much as as happy as they were to win they were also happy just to see that moment come together for Josh I have had a lot of conversations with people this year about the Raiders where people have wondered like what is their identity you know And I've kind of been like, I don't know, is balanced okay? Because they have good pieces in both sides, but that doesn't seem to be a good answer. Uh, Is Josh Jacobs their identity? Is that what it really comes down to? They gave him the rock 33 times yesterday. He touched it, uh, I mean, as uh, almost as frequently as Derek Carr dropped back to pass. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's when they're at their best this season. I mean, early on when they had their struggles, uh, got off to that 0-3 start. The weird thing was, you know, they had moments where they ran the ball well, but they just didn't give Josh Jacobs the ball like for, for some reason. And, and a lot of those games were close games. And so it was just weird. Uh, even now, I mean, they, they're among the bottom in, in terms of rushes per game overall as a team. And so they even they still don't do it enough, in my opinion. But when they do do it a lot, good things tend to happen. I mean, he's he's turned them into huge performances. I mean, he's he's broken his own career rushing yards record like five times this season already, and we still have six games left to go. Like, uh, he's been genuinely like you can make an argument he's been the best running back in the league this season. Uh, I mean, he leads the league in rushing yards right now. He's come along pass catching. I mean, not just on the ground yesterday, but he had 303 yards for scrimmage because he had he he matched Devontae Adams for the for the yeah. team lead in receiving yards yesterday. I mean, he's he's just playing at a sensational level, and they should feed him as much as possible, especially, you know, not having Darren Waller and Hunter Renfro out there these past three games. They'll be out at least one more game on, on injured reserve and potentially longer, we don't know. And so, I mean, as long as those guys are out, and even once they come back, like, keep feeding Josh Jacobs. Like, clearly it's working. I don't see why they should go away from it at any point. You mentioned um, them arguing for him or, or um, you know, saying that he should get the bag now. He's obviously a free agent at the end of the year. Have you picked up any indication that the Raiders are interested in or open to bringing him back? Has that changed as this season has developed? Yeah, they're definitely interested in it. I mean, uh, the, the GM, Dave Ziegler, he talked before the Jaguars game, and he kind of, his wording was essentially that things would take care of themselves. Now, like, I don't know if they expected him to cons- not only sustain this, but to take it to another level as the season went on. I mean, he he may end up playing his way out of their price range because they have spent a lot of money on offense. I mean, they gave Devontae Adams a big deal, Darren Waller, Hunter Renfro, Derek Carr, um, et, et cetera. You know, some big deals on the defensive side of the ball as well. And so at a certain point, they have to start looking at their cap books and seeing, well, how much can we really play Josh Jacobs and take care of, you know, currently what is arguably like the worst defense in football that they have to address many needs on that side of the ball. So there's, there's some sliding scales. And then typically they're coming from that Patriots way. They don't pay running backs. They only pay too many um, high-profile free agents, period, but especially at running back. They've always been running back by committee. And I think they kind of expected that coming into the season. I mean, they drafted Zemir White in the fourth round for a reason. You know, I mean, I mean, he's a guy that people think that could be a starting running back one day. Um, but Josh Jacobs is, is just, I think, exceeded anybody's expectations this season. And he's put himself in a position where, I mean, unless they franchise tag him, like, they may be the only way they can actually keep him because he's – I don't, I don't, you know, this is going to be a, a saturated market a little bit because Saquon is, is, is coming out this year. Miles Sanders, I believe, a few other good running backs. Tony but, Pollard, David Montgomery, the class is cray. But I would have to imagine he's still going to command at least, what, 14, 13, 14 million dollars a year. And it's like, do you do that? Do you do that? Like, as well as he's playing, you know? This is to me, I mean, and I'm getting way ahead of myself because I love off-season roster building type stuff. So, like, mid-season to talk about whether or not someone's going to sign just Josh Jacobs or, like, what he's going to command feels a little bit. I mean, they're four and seven. So, I mean, it's not premature. I wouldn't say. They're four and seven. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I think it's going to be fascinating because of the ways that we've seen the league kind of pivot this year. Like offenses are running more because of the way that defenses are built. NFL Live did a great, you know, whole segment on the fact that this is like uh, an adjustment that they've made to the fact that pass rushers are getting leaner and faster. And so therefore they're maybe not built to stop the run. And so uh, you can now adapt and hand the, the rock off and have a lot more success. I'll have Thomas Dimitrov on in just a second. And I can't wait to get his thoughts on 
how that will affect the off season um, in terms of running backs getting paid potentially, because you mentioned the Patriots. They're not the only ones who have moved towards a don't pay the running back model. Right. I was going to say, I think just for them, you know, the, the element that, that adds to their offense is, you know, teams, they, they have to sell out on Devontae Adams. Otherwise he's going to put them every time, you know, double teaming him playing two high safeties or softer coverages that you're talking about that are leading teams running a lot. But the way Josh Jacobs is playing, you can't just let him continue to run into light boxes and not commit to him. And so it's like, pick your poison. I mean, do you sell, stop on the run and then you're leaving Devontae Adams in single coverage. And then once Waller and Renfro come back, are you leaving all of them in single coverage? Or do you play soft and let him, you know, run up the middle for 86 yards like the Seahawks did? So, I mean, it, it he adds – the way he's playing adds an element to their offense that I don't even think they expected to have coming into the season because in the offseason it was all about the pass game. That's all we heard about. You didn't really hear about Josh Jacobs in the run game. Um, and and with this setup now, I mean, when it's all clicking, it's, it's hard to see a way to really stop the offense. And it's like, do you that, – that that's something that's worth a premium. And, and we're seeing teams. I mean, the 49ers, they traded for Christian McCaffrey. I know they're going to probably restructure his deal, but – yeah, has has a good amount of money. They're going to have to end up paying them, and they were already paying people a good amount of money. And so, I think we, running backs might be back. I know, I know, we kind of killed them off and said the position didn't matter anymore, but they they're making a comeback this year. I want to ask you about Josh McDaniels because he um, talked about wanting to be aggressive in this game in his post game press conferences, and that struck me because I think if I were to frame his approach to that specific game, it would be anything but aggressive. Like people on Twitter were calling him gutless. The way that he approached the end of the first half, the way that he approached the first drive in overtime, like it felt like he wasn't being aggressive. He was the opposite. I mean, 14 seconds left on second down and you kick a field goal at the end of the first half. I don't even, I don't even know how to make that make sense. And I'll be curious to see if anyone asked him about that specifically, but then also kicking a field goal in overtime when that doesn't even win the game and gives the ball to the opponent with an opportunity to beat you. Um, I, I felt like there were also the 33 rushing attempts. You could argue. Right. On the one hand, I suppose that you could argue that he could say, you know, if you give that guy enough opportunities, what you saw happen is bound to happen because he's so explosive and he's such a talented running back. He's going to break a big one. Some would also suggest, though, that it might imply a lack of trust in your quarterback um, because you also have a 20 million dollar a year wide receiver. You could definitely say the same thing about. Right. You continue to give him chances and he will break a big one. Um, what was your take on and what was he saying about his approach during the game in terms of uh, how he made that it makes sense in his head that that was an aggressive approach? Yeah, full transparency. Like I was going to write up if they lost that game, I was going to write about, you know, like why wasn't he more, more aggressive in the kind of the pivotal moments of the game. And after the game, I, I went straight to the locker room. So I didn't go to his press conference. And so I didn't get the ch- chance to ask about some of those moments. But as you said, I mean, at the end of the first half, I mean, they had they didn't have any timeouts left, but that's enough time to take a shot at the end zone with how close they were and not be in danger of falling out of field goal range if you get sacked or you know as long as you don't give the ball away you know which you know they had two turnovers in the first half so maybe they were a little gun shy but then you know in the fourth quarter it seemed like they kind of came around on it they went forward on that fourth and one I didn't like the play call it was like a toss um, but you know they went forward so that was aggressive and it seems like after that they were kind of like all right. That's enough of all that aggressive stuff. So, like, I mean, they, they scored the touchdown. They tied up at 34. They could have gone for two there. They didn't. Then they got the ball back. And they were, they were pinned at, like, their nine-yard line. So they, they were backed up. But you had two timeouts left in 40 seconds. And all you need is a field goal. And you have, like, one of the best kickers in the league. Um, they didn't even try. Then in overtime, 
um, you know, they had the fourth and inches, I think it was, or fourth and one, and you try a 56-yard field goal, basically giving them the ball at the 50-yard line with your defense being a defense that has given up 34 points. Like, it worked out, but it was just like, yo, like, I don't, I don't get why you aren't like going for it here. Like you're three, you were three and seven. Like the season's probably over anyway. But you got nothing to lose. You might as well, you know, go balls to the wall. Um, but uh, it's, it's been a consistent ride. Like sometimes they're super aggressive, sometimes they're not. Uh, and game management in general has not been a strength of theirs this season from a coaching standpoint. Um, I, th- I think we've seen that with a, with a few first year coaches. I think I think McDaniel's getting saved a little bit by by the guys over there and and yes. what they're what they're doing. Um, but you know, all these questions kind of go away after you win, but that's definitely something that with him, I mean, that, that was issue. His first coaching stint is, is kind of that game management and making those decisions. Like he has to grow in that area. Like there's a, a ton of reasons for why they are where they are, but I mean, considering all, how many of their games have been one score games, like, like I think about they're up to eight now, eight, one score games and, and 11 contests. Like I know, I know those are up like league wide, but that's still a pretty high number and they've only won two of them. So like, They've had a lot of other winnable games throughout throughout the season, and, and if he had been better in that area, maybe they come out with a few wins in those, and they're, and they're sitting in a much different spot right now. And so that's going to be something at the end of the year when we look back, you know, assuming that they don't run the table here and make the playoffs, that's going to be something that they, they need to improve going into year two of his tenure. I, I, you know, of all days, this is not the day to like rain on anyone's parade, but I really couldn't help but feel like they won that game in spite of him and that the talent just took over because they have so many talented players and they've lost several, as you've mentioned, while in Renfro throughout the year. But this one felt like, you know, I mean, you can't count on Josh Jacobs doing something. What that 86 yard run was like the 77 yards over expectation on the run was the most by running back in the last two years. He was the fastest that he's ever been in his career. These are not things that you game plan for. That's not in the the plan. If you're Josh McDaniels, anyway, another thing that he said after the game that I just wanted to ask you about was that they have a close knit group there that works hard. And I'm curious about whether the close knit part is true in your opinion, because that was a story just a couple of weeks ago when Derek Carr was tearfully suggesting that he was frustrated and that there maybe wasn't as much buy-in. Devonte Adams kind of um, doubled down on that, and I'm curious about the locker room and whether or not they are the close-knit group that maybe can put things together. Like, okay, so the last couple of games we're riding a win streak now. Does this go anywhere in that way? Yeah, I would say that's more of a work in progress. I mean, they were a very close-knit group last year. They almost yeah. had to be um, and come together with all the things they had going on on and off the field and making that run that they did. But, I mean, they had a major shakeup this offseason. They had a new coach, new GM. They revamped a lot of the roster. I mean, like over half the roster are now guys who weren't here last year. Um, and so, they, I mean, they're new to each other. I mean, they're still kind of figuring each other out and getting close. Um, but I do think they were kind of at an inflection point after that terrible loss to the Colts. So it was abysmal um and Derek Carr crying and not only him but Devontae Adams called like several guys called out you know with what they saw in the locker room and it was a pretty, pretty testy locker room um after that but I, I think winning the last two weeks and winning in the way that they did those are sort of galvanizing you know moments for a team and especially when you have it's an individual performance like Josh Jacobs for a guy that almost didn't play and in the fourth quarter um he actually got hurt again he aggravated the injury he came out the game. He wasn't in the game for like the last three plays, I think, the Raiders had. And they trained us out, didn't want him to play. And he convinced them to go back out there and he bust that, that 86-yard run to win it. I mean, they say, so that was, I'm like sorry, that. that was when they were going, the, the that back and forth was when Abdullah was was running the ball at the end of regulation? Yeah. Got it. Yeah. 
that's why Josh Jacobs was not there because um, he train staff was telling me your day was over and he eventually convinced them that obviously that ended up working out for them but I mean you had Derek Carr I mean he had a back injury coming into the game he got a pretty mean hit in the first quarter he played through it Colton Miller he didn't play last week they're their best offensive line and he played through a couple injuries and so they're seeing guys push through things even though they're in this position where like making the playoff seems pretty bleak and they're pushing through these injuries and having these big performances and that goes a long way with the locker room no matter how they feel about the coaching staff well, that argument he made on the sideline must have been very convincing because they went to him on six of their eight overtime plays. To Sean Reed from The Athletic, I really appreciate your time in the bougie airport lounge. Enjoy your coffee and have a safe <laughs> flight back to Vegas. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me as always. Hi, everyone. This is Hope Solo, host of Hope Solo Speaks, a serious XM podcast. The biggest sporting event in the world is upon us, and we decided to do something unique. All throughout the tournament, I'll be bringing on great female soccer players from all over the world to discuss what's going on in the men's games. With new episodes every week, all the way through the finals, it's analysis you won't get anywhere else. Hope Solo Speaks is available on the SXM app with all of our trials and popular plans or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. And joining us now, one of the best dressed general managers to hit the NFL in the last couple decades, at the very least, Thomas Dimitrov. Who's your competition for that? Best uh, dressed front office guy. Steve Kime. Everyone tells me that Steve Kime has taken the front, the lead. Really? On. Yeah. We're completely different body types. Steve and I joke about it all the time. I was there, you know, I don't know, a year ago and we were we were hanging out in his area. We were riding around in his scooters around in his neighborhood. And it's like me, 165 pounds and him probably 265. Well, maybe even more because he's a big dude. And uh, you gotta be so, careful with this conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Right. I get it. All but, muscle, anyway, all muscle, all muscle. Yeah, no, all muscle. He's a, he's a dude, man. I, I really enjoy Steve, but he likes, he likes his clothes and he likes his watches. And, and I, and I do enjoy watches as well. So <laughs> We got some steez in the desert. I don't, I, I did not know. Okay. I'm going to put that on my radar and I'm going to pay attention to what he's wearing next time I see him. Um, the Cardinals are doing the, that in season hard knocks stuff. How do you feel about that? We did, we did something similar to that back in, uh, I don't know, early, let's see, I, I got, was in Atlanta from eight to uh, 2008, probably, uh, nine, 10 or 11. We did, I can't even remember, but it was crazy because it was, there was just so much going on and you, you try to stay focused and you realize that it's probably best for the brand to do it. And I remember Arthur Blank saying, no, we're going to do it. We need, we need to like push ourselves out there. So I, I went into it, Lindsay, with an approach that I was going to have fun with it and I was going to be real about it, et cetera, et cetera. I'm in the middle of you know four different cameras in my office. I'm just speaking about the GM's office, let alone the head coaches. Uh-huh. I got into a really intense conversation, like a really, really private, intense conversation. And I realized, oh, my God, I have four microphones. I dropped the phone and I ran across the building and went in there and I said, have you guys been listening to this? Like, no, we, we kind of had the volume down. I'm thinking, uh-huh. oh, my God. I hope sure. Yeah, right. I'm thinking, I hope that has, doesn't surface uh, 10 years from now. But Totally. Did you were you concerned at the time? Because I always feel like people have to be concerned about giving away secrets, right? Like, and obviously NFL films is going to protect you to a degree. Like it's not in their best interest to all of a sudden be like, I gotcha, you know, but um, that's funny. You say that coming from the Patriot paradigm, you would think I'd be hyper paranoid. 
I was I was kind of like the, the black sheep of the family that way because I I probably gave people the benefit of the doubt more than I should have. That said, I was particular. I always I've I've always been able I think to navigate well enough. Uh, at least around my world, the secrets that came out from other people. Yeah, I was a little bit concerned here and there. But, you know, look, we were a little bit more open than, you know, we were probably comfortable being. I mean, I remember, if you remember some of the stuff, we had Brian Cox on there and he was getting after Rashid Hegeman and they were getting after each other. And there, there were things like that that happened. Sometimes you're thinking, I don't know if I really want this out. But in the end, as long as your owner is comfortable with it, um, you know, I felt comfortable enough with it. But do I didn't expect to ask eight questions about hard knocks uh, to kick off our episode here. Um, but I am curious uh, with some experience there. Is that something that teams around the league keep an eye on, like looking for things that might be tipped? Oh, I'm sure they do. No, no question. You're you're good. You're good. Because I think that's a good place to play around and try to see if you can find any any you know extra little nuance that might you know tip tip your hat for sure. So you have um, made some interesting career choices within the last year. And I want to talk to you about Sumer Sports um, because I think that, uh, well, tell me why you decided to go down this path and be the CEO of, how do you describe the company? I called it a roster optimization company. Do you think that that's a fair blanket way to describe what you do? Well, you had our buddy on the other day, right? Yeah, Eric. Eric, Eric's great. Really glad that we were able to bring him over. Yes. And he, he speaks very, uh, very much the same about you. And I think, you know, having the group of intelligentsia, so to speak, that we have, like we have 25 really, really smart data scientists and engineers in that group. So that is in and of itself has been an amazing journey for me, right? Having come from a really strong football background, of course, uh, as much as I always took pride in thinking that we were on the front end of the curve and I was open to a lot of really, really interesting things, I always I took a lot of pride in that. Sitting down with some of these people talking about this at a completely different level makes me believe like, wow, there are elements out there that we could go to and revolutionize the NFL. And I do believe that. I don't say that lightly. I do think so. And, and again, with a lot of the intelligence being able to share with my ex, you know experiential insight, I think we can do some pretty special things. So to your question, it's it's a roster optimization tool. Marvel is 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 the name of our product underneath the Sumer Sports umbrella. But we're working on a number of uh, what what is the Envo phrase? You probably heard this: a suite of offerings within oh, Sumer Sports. Yeah, it sounds good, right? Sweet. Yeah, suite of offerings. And and without getting into a ton of detail right now, because I don't want to get ahead of, ahead of the curve here, but there are just elements within this company and being able literally to quantify at a level that has not been done before, an advanced analytic element to this uh, company that is not just your box, regular box scores or some of the, the run-of-the-mill analytics that have surfaced. There is, There are no teams out there. There's not one team out there or owner that would hire 25 people and put the, the amount of money that you know, Paul Tudor Jones is putting into this company to create what we're creating. There's no one that would do that. So we think that we can come to the table for many teams in the NFL and offer a level of, of analytics and a level of, uh, anal- you know, analysis through uh, cutting edge algorithms that has never been touched before. So that's what we're really, really excited about. How do you, how do you do this? Like, what are some of the untapped areas? As far as 
the analytics. Well, let's let's first start by I used to go into Arthur Blank as GM of the Falcons, and I was there for I call it 13, even though it was 12 and a half. My God, we all know how how odd that is when that change is made, right? We'll talk about that another day. But I I I remember going into Arthur all those years saying, Arthur, man, I have 15 scenarios for you, right? How we're going to approach the pre, you know, the offseason, uh, free agency and the draft. 15. Lindsay and I thought, man, I, I have it figured out. What, what Marvel does and what this roster optimization tool does for teams, it provides millions and millions of options to consider. Unfathomable, of course, for the human mind, right? So if you're open-minded enough to take you know, what you know, and I, I say this to all my GM brethren and, and contemporaries, I'm like, guys, you, you go in here and if you consider yourself really adept at what you do, i.e. evaluating talent and building teams, and you're open-minded enough to take a tool like this, an algorithm-based tool like this, and you're, you're, you're willing to augment your talents, it can only make you exponentially better and more rounded and less sort of mistake-ridden. There are so many mistakes in this role, that formerly of the role I was in, when you're sitting in a GM, I don't care how good you are, Howie Roseman right now, um, John Schneider, you know, uh, Trent Baalke, cross the board. I don't care who you are and where you are. We all know that we are shooting from the hips at times when we are picking our teams and building our teams. Bring something like this to, the, to, to, to your side to be the general manager's best friend. And, and Lindsay, not black box. Man and machine, man and woman machine, but man and machine as it stands right now. And, and I do believe, and we believe, this takes the, the average GM to being a good GM and the good GM to being the very good GM. And I do believe this, the very good to potentially being a Hall of Famer. And it allows these GMs to really hone in on what their art is, what their genius is, and hopefully for them, parlay it into two, three, and four more contracts. An owner is going to look at this, and I do believe it's 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 very very important for a, a general manager to take all of the tools into consideration to provide the best for that owner and that respective organization and their city and their fan base. And we believe that we can do this through through what we're offering. What is the biggest mistake that people, general managers who are people, make when they're shooting from the hip, as you said? Well, I think what happens, I'll, I'll put my hands up, both of them, because sometimes it's complicated. When you are driven by need, i.e., we're all driven by the need of a quarterback, mm -hmm. we're all driven, as we know, maybe a little bit less, but believe me, I was driven, and Dan Quinn, we were driven by the need of getting pass rushers. By the way, pass rushers, there are a lot of mistakes. We think there are a lot of mistakes in quarterbacks. There are so many mistakes in the draft process in in acquiring pass rushers you might have studs and athletes that can get up around the field vic beasley we took this vic beasley and we put our butts out there on it dan and i he he led the, the the league in sacks the year we went to the super bowl and after that he plummeted good man good soul i'm not this is nothing personal but as a business move we missed on him and then the same the same with um you know we've done that before we did it with um um, our guy from, oh gosh, Pat McKinley, two mm. guys that we brought in at because we were so forced by our need to get up and around the corner to get to the quarterback. 
that both of them opposite ends of the spectrum, not, not to um, delay this point. One, in the end, the passion was the concern from Vic. And I'm speaking about it because it's real. And then on Tack McKinley, opposite end of the spectrum, pins his ears back. You remember MFing mm-hmm. on the draft. He was throwing F-bombs around. Yes. Just a full, full on hard charging guy. But for some reasons, things went awry. So two guys, different ends of the spectrum. They were complicated. But we shot from the hip only because we saw all the athleticism and movement on both of these guys. But we missed on some of the other elements, which we go on and on about. And that we think we might have been able to, um, you know, potentially head off on the pass through some of our analytic approaches. Yeah. How? How how would an algorithm be able to narrow down and say, like, this probably isn't going to work? How do you hit on more pass rushers with that? Well, I, look, I think you can go into a lot of detail on this and we're, we're still trying to figure out, Lindsay, we're trying to figure right. out what everyone says to me, by the way, and I'm going to get there. Any one of these GMs that I met with last year that I did through my GM journeys when I traveled around, everyone to a T, we don't miss on the player, we miss on the person, right? There's a lot of that out there, meaning you can pick the, the fancy guy, the guy who's explosive and all the numbers that fall into place as far as box score numbers and bench press and speed. But there's another element out there that is really, really important to tap into, and that is how do we tap into passion? How do we tap into drive, desire, et cetera, et cetera? And those are complicated things to be measuring, you know, right. measuring through analytics. And we're really working, we're working on that right now, um, deeply working on that right now to try to figure out how we can do that. So to answer your question on the DNs and what we can do through through our algorithms, we're hoping that we combine. The combination of the IP from each individual organization that wants to work with us, IP being what they're willing to share with us, along with along with age curves, along with financial curves, along with uh, playtime, um, and and myriad other elements that we're dropping into this without giving too proprietary, dropping into the algorithm that will produce, you know, ideally the optimal level of fifty three men for your roster. And not only for the roster and free agency, but also in the draft. We think that our our algorithm can can help present the best optimal players, excuse me, for each respective team in the NFL. So So we're we're talking about a lot of things that will be kind of drive the NFL storyline come off season when every team shifts to how do we make this team better? Um, What do we need to do in terms of who we bring back, what we draft, position groups that need to be addressed? This feels like a really interesting time of year in that there are a handful of teams that are kind of, I would imagine, to a degree already in that mode. Like there are some teams that we know this is not their year, whether they're officially out of it or not. You know, there are uh, at least 10 teams that I would say, like, they're not going to make the playoffs. Like, you know, um, although in the NFC South, everybody's still in it, (laughs) but, you know, only one will go. So what is it like in that front office? At this time of year, when obviously you still need to field a competitive team, it's not like you're going to be like, okay, everybody, everybody that we know about off the field, we just need a bunch of randoms to go on so that we can evaluate. But like, there's kind of a balancing act, I would imagine. There is a balancing act. And I, and I think it's interesting because you never want to admit that you're out of the playoffs until you, you truly have that X beside your, your, your name on the, on the standings. Right. For a million reasons, right? For a million reasons, sure. Yeah. But the reality is if you are a smart team builder, 
Right. Um, you know, you want to be working with your head coach as a GM and you want to be in, in the offices late at night talking about the next wave of how you're going to build your team and what you need and who's going to potentially be there and not be there. Of course, that discussion is not had with even other other assistant coaches. I mean, it really comes down to a very small group, i.e. between, you know, a head coach and a GM. Usually maybe an owner at certain times might, you know, sort of fold into that conversation. But what's interesting about what we've we've discussed a little bit before is, you know, how as team builders, you get the players that you want to see playing on the field to see if they're worthy of another contract or worthy of a big time contract. Mm -hmm. Um, But those at times, that's a difficult move for a head coach. Because all of a sudden, if he puts someone in there that the masses are questioning, like, wait a minute, why is that person in there? Or, you know, what are you doing here? Is this is just throwing up your hands? Thank you. you. Oh, yeah. Yes. That is the worst thing as an organization. It's the worst thing for an owner to think that his guys are doing it, even though we've seen, I won't mention names, but we've seen certain owners (laughs) suggest that you do that, you know, to your team builders. But it it is it can be really complicated, and you know it not only affects how you're playing and how you're how you're working your substitutions because I think you can do it. I think you tactfully can do it without coming across as tanking, uh, but I think you have to be very careful about it. But it is important. I mean, there were times when we would see players that we knew were not going to be with us, and we wanted to see some of our younger guys, especially down. I'm talking the last two or three games. I'm not talking about halfway through the season, of course, right? right? You start getting creative, and I think I think there's a way to do it tactfully, um, but it's a fine line for sure. Do you think we'll see Aaron Rodgers again this season for kind of the reasons that we're talking about? They need to get a read on Jordan Love at some point, they or, need or are they just like, okay, we're just gonna have them both, and we're gonna we're gonna give him his fifth year? Like, what do they do with Jordan Love? I don't understand because they have this contract for Aaron Rodgers. Um, I mean, they're out this year. Now's as good a time as any, especially since he's hurt. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I think the reality is, you know, you, whether you like, um, you know, Aaron or not personally or or characteristically or whatever, it's beside the point. I do believe when he's playing really well and he's focused and he's not hurt, he is one of the very best and has been one of the very best. He's the way just everything that he used to do. I mean, he used to hate playing him for that reason. Although we, we had a pretty good track record down the stretch but I, but there was so much that he offered and, and, you know, there are some idiosyncrasies that I'm, that at least seem like they surface at times where I am sure that green Bay is getting to the spot, you know, Brian Gutekinds and, 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 and Matt uh, LaFleur are talking like, well, it'll be interesting to see how this is when the time comes, but don't wish for that time to come too soon because there are very few like this person in the league. That said back to Jordan love, look, you, you, you know, how much has Jordan played? Seriously, do you know the percentages over the years? I, I don't know the exact percentage. Maybe you don't. I should be coming to the table with that. That he's actually played? Yeah. Like how much, how much playtime has he had in the league? Oh, I mean, time? very, very little, right? He started uh, one game, right? The last year and lost. You would think me coming from Sumer Sports, I'd come with some great statistics no. here. No, I mean, yeah, you have no way to know that I'm going to ask about Jordan Love. Like, come with Jordan Love stats? I'd be like, who are you, computer man? (laughs) But I will say, Jordan Love, what they need to do is they need to also, at least what I would do is I would look and see, can I get him some time 
while this is playing out the way it is to, to showcase him, because let's call it the way it is. Everyone is sorry. A lot of teams are looking for quarterbacks. They're looking for young quarterbacks. They're looking for a quarterback that has been under a guy like Aaron Rodgers and, a, and an organization like that. And it, and it may play out where he, you know, maybe he does finish the season and he shows well, and they decide they may have some potential trade suitors on it. I don't, I don't know. That's what I would be looking at as well. The, the, the dead cap situation for Aaron Rodgers is nuts. And again, I know I'm, I'm catching you off guard here. So if Rodgers retires or is traded in 2023, the Packers are left with $40.3 million of dead salary cap um, that hits them in 2023. Um, and then if they cut him, his 2023 base salary and option bonus of $59.5 million is fully guaranteed and would also hit the cap. Uh, effectively, he's got he's got a huge contract here for a few more years now. So are you, are there any ways out from Aaron Rodgers? And you already said you don't, you don't want to move on from like Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks of all time. The problem here is that if the team is not ready to be competitive, then, you know, is it worth paying that amount of money when you have Jordan love sitting on the bench? Um, and you have also invested a lot in him. Is, is the obvious answer to trade Jordan Love and stick with Aaron Rodgers and then just come up with a new plan when well, he does eventually move on? Yeah, what, honestly, when you put that much money into a quarterback, it is it is really, of course, difficult to walk away. I had elements of that with Matt Ryan, um, of course. And then when when I left, of course, you know, Matt was there and they made a move and it was a big move. What do they have? 70 or 80 million dollars dead money. At Atlanta right now, Julio Jones gone and Matt Ryan. Those are big numbers. Back to back to Aaron Rodgers, back to Green Bay, Jordan Love. Let me little funny thing, and I used this in a in a in our pod at Sumer recently, and I I revealed to the world that myself and, and our cap guy Nick Polk at the time in Atlanta, we used to have kind of a running line, and I would tell him what is the puke point, or I would ask him, and he's like, "What do you mean?" We, I'd say, "Tell me the puke point." Where can I go until it's time for, you know, that I will not throw up by moving on from this player financially? So we coined it the, the, the puke point in the last probably eight years. And we, we laughed about it only because it's how I felt when I looked at some of those numbers. Like you look at this with Aaron Rodgers, you're going to be throwing up for, for years to come on this. You can't make just some random move. Now, this comes back to Brian Gudikins. It comes back to the organization. It comes back to Matt LaFleur. It comes back to Mark Murphy. Like that's a lot of money in the organization. They made, and I guarantee this wasn't just Brian Gudikins, right? This was the entire group. When you make a big move like that in an organization, it's not just one person slamming his fist on the, on the table. And the, the interesting thing about it, Aaron Rodgers is not necessarily the personality of uh, Justin Herbert or Matt Ryan or some of these other other guys like he's got a personality that that they have to deal with because he's a strong not saying those guys aren't strong personalities Lindsay but they're just totally. different with their approaches yep where, where Aaron's pretty outspoken very outspoken and they're gonna have to navigate and, and as they had to navigate before they even made that move what about um Gino what does Seattle do? And in this scenario, just to take this off the table, uh, let's, for purposes of this conversation, say Gino continues to play at the level that he's at for the rest of the year. 
that's off the table. That's what we're looking at. That's our sample size. What do they do? Think about that. Like, what is he? 32? I think just about 32. Moving around the way he's doing, what he's doing. I mean, kudos to John Schneider and Pete Carroll and how they approached that. I mean, I was probably one of the ones quietly thinking, gosh, how is this going to play out? Yeah. So I love seeing that. I think, you know, good for for Gino, right? Because there were a lot of naysayers over the years. I thought they were lying to us when they were like, yeah, Gino, we're excited about him. I was like, okay, like you're, you're rebuilding and he's inexpensive and you're doing your positive talk thing that you do. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Turns out uh, they were onto something. Well, and right now, I mean, whatever, however we're following and whatever stats we're following, even if it is PFF right now, and you're thinking about one of the top 10 quarterbacks in our league, I think he's rated at seven in a lot of different categories, all three, basically. He can run, he can pass, of course, overall offense. Pretty, imp- very impressive, right? I think as an organization, what I'm confused about where I'm sitting now is like, what what level would you pay him? Right. Right. Because mm-hmm. if, if like, what level would you pay him? Where do you feel comfortable with a 32-year-old quarterback uh, though he's operating the way he is. I mean, that's, that's, that's a tough decision to make here. Here are the numbers that jump out at me. Sure. Uh, Tannehill has 29, five per. Oh, yeah. Does, yeah. does, does a Tannehill contract appeal to you if you're Gino and if you're, and if you're Seattle, does that benefit both parties? Well, it surely benefits Gino, but I'm not sure if it benefits, uh, well, I you know, that's a great point. When we when we signed Matt Ryan to thirty million, he was the first thirty million dollar quarterback, right? And I got skewered for it just because everyone's like, "Oh, what are you doing?" Within two months, you know, it was the next quarterback, of course. And so your point, it's not fifty million, right? It's nope. 29, 30. Yep. You know, it's a really good thought, and uh, I don't know how to answer that right now because I haven't been in the world as quickly as it's been right in the last two years to be staring down the barrel of a fifty million dollar quarterback. That is, is uh, again, unfathomable. That is tough for the, the human mind to comprehend. What's the right length for a Gino? Because I would imagine that factors in too, right? Like yeah, yeah. you want it to be a shorter deal. You're not committing long-term to Gino because it's a one-year sample size for a guy that we've seen for a long time, not look like this guy. Now that might be developmental. It might just be that he just hadn't never had the opportunity and he has developed into this guy. And this is who he is now, which is fair but it's it's a lot of money to bet on that. It's a lot of money, but but remember you you do want a little bit of a longer contract when you're talking about 30 plus million dollars, right? You can get creative with how you work that contract versus even though the APY may let's just call it be 30 million dollars if that's where we go with it, you're able to spread out and and again be creative within a longer contract than just a 2-year contract. My head went to four in the in the spirit of trying to be smart about how you how you set up the contract. Um, we can get into details another time about that, of course. And that's just you just need to kind of finagle a way out somehow. Yeah, back to what I was like saying. Void years or something. Yeah, there's there's got to be a point in that contract where you can step away and you're not just all under, of course. Uh, so I'll be interested to see what they're looking for guaranteed money. This isn't all about APY for him. He's going to be looking for the guaranteed money. He's going to be looking for the guaranteed three-year money. Uh, it's it's a really unique situation at 32. 
and, um, and small sample size. I think it's, I think it's fascinating. And I know this is like, you know, it's, it's week 13 that is upon us. Uh, so it's way, uh, ahead of the game here, but I'm fascinated by the Geno storyline. And I'm also fascinated by the running back pay situation because we have obviously moved in a direction as a league where you don't want to give running backs a second contract, or if you do, it needs to be kind of team friendly because there's a cliff that non Derrick Henry running backs tend to fall off of. So you've got some guys that are pretty good that are going to hit the free agent market. And I'm really curious about whether or not their teams pay them and what they pay them. Saquon Barkley and Josh Jacobs at the top of the list. What do you think happens with them? Well, it's tough because I have been one of those people over the years who are thinking, man, you can pull, you can pull that really good running back in the third, fourth or fifth round. And you see it, right. You watch some of these guys that are running and I'm thinking over the last, even over this last weekend and up until, you know, uh, yesterday, just watching these guys run with such power, right? I'm just, I'm, and I'm thinking, their 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 careers are short lived for the most part, and and I'm just thinking like you don't need to spend that type of money on that position, and yet when you see the real studs at that position, you, you know you, you you sort of your mind starts going like, wow, if we were to have had that guy, I'm, I'm going back to Atlanta. In those last two years when we couldn't get a run game going and we put so much damn pressure on Matt Ryan and he got his butt kicked so many times because we just couldn't get the ball going. And, and by the way, kudos to Arthur Smith right now, um, the way that their run game is playing, you know, in Atlanta. I know they're middle of the road and they're struggling here and there, but they have a run game going. They sure and that, that's a great deal of credit to Arthur and how he's approaching it. That's a little aside. They're incredibly committed to it. Yes. Uh, as every Kyle Pitts or Drake London fantasy owner will tell you. Yeah. I bet you didn't expect me to be lauding the Atlanta Falcons, but uh, no, I, I, I actually do like uh, Arthur and I, and I do like Terry Fontenot. Um, I still live in Atlanta, by the way, just for, for listeners to know. And that I was told by Bill Polian when I first got fired, he's like, Thomas, first thing you need to do is get the hell out of Atlanta. I'm like, this is where my family is. This is where my wife's family is. This is where I'm, this is, I've had 13 years in this city. So I, that's been an interesting navigation. Another time, another place as well. But, you know, when I, the last couple of years, when I would look up on the TV and I would see the, the Falcons playing, it was, it hurt my heart because I felt yes. like I wasn't invited to the party that I was supposed to be at because it was yeah. still guys that we had. It's not my party anymore. So I can look there with a, a much easier, easier sort of, less jaded perception time heals all wounds as they say right right, right um, exactly. the running back thing is is especially interesting to me this offseason not just because of the names but because of the ways that i think we've seen um offenses adapt and nfl live did a really great segment on this a few weeks back about the reason they thought uh the rushing numbers were going up and they attributed it to the ways that defenses had changed in terms of like the way that they built the defensive lines in particular to stop the pass. Uh, and they got leaner and faster and like your defensive ends are, you know, in like the 270 pound range, whatever, like these just like muscular guys, but they're not space eaters like they used to be. And so offenses could take a look at the way defenses are built and say, well, let's just not do the thing that that they're built to stop. Let's do the other thing now that they're no longer built to do that. 
And I think it's an interesting way to look at that. And of course, the NFL is very circular in that sense. And I'm curious about the ways that you think front offices might have to pivot now to adjust that pivot on the offensive side. I'm sorry, the weight. Defenses might pivot and all talked in circles here. Yes. I, look, I, I I sit there and I think about it when when I transitioned from Mike Smith and, you know, from 08 to 14 and when Dan Quinn came in, right? Dan brought that really fast athletic defense of idea that he had in, in Seattle. And it's it's why we got to the Super Bowl in 16. We were flying. No one could run with us. I had heard stories where, where – uh, this is a where Bill and his staff, you know, with the Patriots, when they went out at halftime in 16 in that Super Bowl, they're like, we can't run with these guys. Of course, they came back and and completely Jedi mind us. Right. But but to that point, I realized early on I was so excited because I've always been a person as a GM and as a team builder. I've loved athleticism. Right. I've loved movement and fluidity of movement with those guys that you're talking about, the 270s that can run like they're. 210 or the Julio Jones who looks like he's 5'11 moving around because he's just so athletic. But there comes a time when our linebackers, honestly, Lindsay, our linebackers ends up end up being 215 to 20 pounds. We were playing with Deion Jones at times. We were getting, he's a he was a really good football player for us, but he was getting his ass knocked around when at the point we call it, it was really complicated. Teams started running on us. And they were running consistently on us. Not only were we not running those last two years, like offensively, we were getting pushed around drastically on defense. Unfortunately, we could run with anyone, but it became complicated. So, you know, you're you're exactly right. Teams are now looking at that and they're realizing if we can get that good run game going. Is it going to be, to your point, cyclical? Are these teams going to start bringing in bigger guys and instead of running in the zone scheme offensive line? Are they just going to be drilling it down, you know, these these more light in the ass athletic defenses and just start, you know, which I think, I, like I said, I think Arthur Smith is doing a heck of a job over in Atlanta. He's running on them. Their running backs are running downhill. It's fun to watch that. And I feel like, man, I wish we would have had some insight on that earlier on. But it's a it will be interesting to see, to your point, last point. Yeah, I think teams, team builders and GMs are going to be really mindful about where they go and how they start you know, factoring in some of the bigger guys, um, because we always say in the NFL, it's a matchup league. And if you can't run with those players, you have no chance, but this is a little bit of a different twist to it. Yeah. It's fascinating. What's your favorite thing about roster building? Um, I like, um, uh, I like the idea of there, there is a, there is a, a strategy chess element to it. I love being able to sit back and look at that roster day in, day out with the head coach, because we would do it all the time. Um, Mike and I would do it, Smitty, early on. But then when Dan came in, we did it a lot because Dan was Dan Dan Quinn, of course, as you know, D coordinator at Dallas, really good. I think he should get another shot. You know, he we were he loved personnel. So it was really fun talking about building the team with him, along with talking about scheme, right? So it wasn't a division between management personnel and coaching it we we worked i thought together really really well that way that was probably my most favorite time of really looking at at the the whole picture of, of building team and i will tell you i do someone asked me the other day i think it might have been e even eric eager on it when he said would you rather scout or evaluate the diamond in the rough or the studs you know when you go into those schools right or when you're evaluating and 
I would say it's always fun doing the diamond in the rough, finding that every once in a while, but there is nothing like going into a play, a school to watch the Julio Jones of the, of the world or the, the Justin Herberts of the world or whoever that may be seeing the cream of the crop, the, the, the most special people, because you realize there's nowhere else in the world the athletes move around like they do and have the brawn that they do. Yeah, basketball players, believe me, I know they're awesome athletes, but that I, I find a buzz, right? When you when you get a chance to put your pillar players together, and by the way, we call pillars, at least in my world, it was probably six to eight players on your team are your pillar players, your quarterback, of course, your left tackle, you know, your corner, your wide receiver, your inside backer, and maybe, you know, whatever it may be, five, six to eight. Getting those pillar guys in place and building around those guys to me is a real buzz. I hope one day to feel it again, but if I don't, uh, I'll do it vicariously through a lot of my buddies in the league. How many sub-average players can you afford to have on the field at a time? And where would you where would you put them? Yeah, because just in terms of roster building, right? You're going to have some deficiencies. Yeah. You can't unload yeah. the club. Like, you would love it. You would love to be like, hey, I found this really good under-the-radar guy who costs absolutely nothing, and I'm going to put him in here um, because we've got our big money guys here, here, and here. Um, but realistically, you're going to have some holes and some areas that you just haven't uh, haven't put the resources behind. We 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 like to think uh, we don't go to the sub average because that's a tough thing for us to get our heads around as a team. <laughs> we think we can find everyone. We like to call those guys more the the above average, the adequate ones versus the good, very okay. good, and excellent. Right. So for for the sake of this conversation, that adequate group that can get you by, that's a tough thing on offense and defense. So like on each side of the ball. If you start having more than than two, it, it becomes complicated, right? Because teams go there, they know where the holes are. And this is a smart group of coaches in this league, right? I mean, I, you know, you could say, oh, that guy's a, a football guy through and through. He could never understand analytics or this or that. The intelligence that this group has with game planning and the chess match, I, I'm I'm sometimes blown away how smart the offensive coordinators and the D coordinators are. It's, pretty fascinating to see and where they come up with the holes within the organization and on the team they they locate them and they violate them that's probably the wrong word (laughs) violate um they'll they'll expose them for sure and uh so it's interesting i will say this when coming from new england being with bill belichick what i thought bill did in in an amazing job with was he would take the players that you know as you're referring to them as let's just call them the adequate players and he would say all right I will take this guy who is really good. He's an adequate overall player, but he's really good at these three things we are asking him to perform. Just three. There may be another guy out there that is exponentially better, but we need him to perform these three. We'll take this guy in the third or fourth round versus taking this sort of universally all-encompassing player in the second or first round, and we'll get more out of the more use out of this player. A guy like Mike Vrabel was that and Teddy and Bruski, those guys were starters in the league because Bill understood he could get good football players, smart, good football players who understood their roles really, really well. And they thrived, man. I thought that was, it was poetry in motion. How does he nail the cornerback position so much? It's, it's like they bring guys in, they pop, they go elsewhere. They're not quite the same. It seems uh, and it feels like whoever he pivots to that you're like, I can't believe you got rid of that guy. And he's turning to that guy. Who's that guy. And then that guy's the next best guy. 
you know what? I think, of course, he's coached everything. I think he's just got a really, really good feel and a, and a love for the defensive secondary in the secondary and the defensive backfield. You know, he, he's kind of always had that, right? I remember being in there in my first year being with New England. Pioli brought me in and Scott and I were on the board with Bill and Bill was asking me all these pointed questions about the secondary and about lawyer Malloy, right? And uh, basically saying, you know, and I thought, well, you know, I didn't know exactly how to to approach it because I didn't, you know, I thought I had a really good grasp of sa safeties and corners, but there I was going against the guru in that area. And um, suffice it to say, we, we, we went around very quickly, not too long, because he basically put me in my spot saying, this is what this guy is, and this is how much longer he, he belongs in this organization. He's done great things here, but I don't care what you're saying, Thomas, because you're seeing the wrong thing. And it, it pushed me in years to come while I was there. I was there six years to really hone in. And I took the safety position on, position on as my as my um, expert position, because we all had expert positions. And there was no way in years to come I was ever going to come to the table without being completely armed with anything I could to make sure that I could battle properly and not be put in that spot again where I kind of was just tiptoeing around. So it's a funny little quirky story, but it is what Bill is, man. He will he will surprise you with his intelligence across the board at all positions. He's also very well known for not being emotional about any of these decisions. Like he's the king of the get out a little bit too early as opposed to a little bit too late. How hard is that as a general manager to like know when is the time to move on, even though it's tough and and sometimes people will be critical because it feels like the wrong time, but actually it's exactly the right time before the decline happens. Well, it's it's amazing that you bring Bill up in that situation because, you know, obviously any of us who are with Bill Belichick and left to take on our own organizations, you know, there were certain things we took and other things we, we didn't, of course, right? That weren't our personalities. One thing that I always wanted to take and thought I wanted to take was that idea, getting just ahead of it, right? I thought he was always magical on a year before, right? The fan base might might bitch and moan about it or whatever it was. People on the team might, but in the end, it, it ended up being the right thing to do. When I got to Atlanta a couple years in, we moved, interestingly enough, we moved to center. His name was Todd McClure. It was a really good center for a long time, but he was on the tail end of his career. I thought I was going to be Belichickian with the move. And I told Matt Ryan, I said, we're going we're gonna to make a move here. We're going to draft Peter Kahn's. Uh, from Wisconsin in the second round to be the heir apparent to center. And we're going to move on from, uh, from um, uh, Todd McClure. Well, here's, here's what happened to me in this mode. In the end, we move on from Todd McClure. Matt and, and Peter Kahn's don't work well together. Peter Kahn's ends up being another guy I really liked. This is not, this is business. One of my worst picks ever. I got skewered for it. In, in 2012, we had no one left on our draft and Peter Kahn's was the, First pick of the of the 2012 draft. That was the year, by the way, after the Julio Jones draft, right? So everyone was like, well, there's a reason that Julio didn't work. You followed up with a horrible draft and you followed up with an old lineman that you thought was going to replace your center with some Belichickian influences on it, and you didn't hit on it. So everyone thinks they can be Bill. <laughs> In the end, we always say no one can be Bill, right? There's just something about that. And I'm this isn't a Bill fest here. All I'm saying is you learn a lot. And I realized after that, you have to be very mindful of the talent you have. And it's not that easy to just get rid of him a year before his contract's up. It, it really is not. 
you have made a what seems like a concerted decision to um, take a different path rather than going back into a front office somewhere right now. Like the fact that you're working with Sumer instead of in a front office in the NFL, what are you looking for there? Um, why'd you make that decision? So it's a great question. I, I mean, I, I thought about it deeply and, you know, I was looking to see if there was something that potentially came around uh, last year. Um, even before it didn't come around, I was contacted by, you know, Paul Tudor Jones, world famous macro trader. You, you probably read about him and he's, he's uh, been unbelievably successful. And I always had thought I, if I don't get back into the NFL right now, I would love to be involved with a startup. Uh, I would love to be involved with a startup and I've used this line before, but I did not want to sell bowling balls. I did. I wanted it to be in my world, right? I wanted to stay in football and out of the blue PTJ, Paul Tudor Jones reaches out to me through a good friend of mine um, as well. The commissioner had endorsed me on it, but a guy, do you know, Doug Hendrickson? I don't. Doug's a longtime agent. And Doug, Doug had is, is good friends with Paul. Paul reached out to me and said, look, we need a domain expert. Uh, slash CEO, we'd be interested in talking to you about it. And let's talk about the direction of, um, you know, Sumer Sports and what he and his son were doing. So Paul's the co-founder with his son. His son's 26 years old. He's the COO. Uh, of course, I'm the CEO. So we work together really close, you know, very closely. And I started thinking the more I thought about this, for me to go to another team, to a buddy's team and help them either as a consultant or uh, or as an assistant GM, maybe in time there, I, I say this respectfully, that was not, I was not going to grow in that way. I've already kind of been there, done that, right. you know, to, to go back and to be an assistant GM. If I were to be a GM for three or four years and I got fired, that would have been a different story. And I have some of my buddies that are doing that, right? I get that. But having been in the league for as long as I was my age and and my experience as a general manager, I thought this was going to be exponentially more beneficial to me, help me grow in a lot of ways, help me grow with a business perspective. Of course, I've never been a CEO before. We started with three people. We're now at 25. We're growing fast. I'm learning every day, not only from these really, really intelligent people, but I'm also learning about the business side of football that, yeah, I was involved in, in building teams, but that was that was different. So this is good. This gives me sort of a, an open runway in a lot of different ways. And you know, I hope that everything's going to work out really, really well with this company. And I would have to make a really difficult, a really difficult choice uh, if if uh, if a team ever did come knocking. If they do, I'm hoping that we build uh, build really well here. Well, Thomas, it feels like uh, you've latched yourself onto a big growth industry. The analytics angles in football, it feels like, um, I mean, obviously it's become so massive and it feels like there's room for it to grow even more. I heard you and Eric talking on your podcast, Sumer sports podcast about, um, about being able to contribute to like coaching searches, things like that, having that be more rooted in information and data, as opposed to like, you know, somebody is somebody else's friend or whatever and vouches for them. And so I'm really interested and eager to see where this goes for you. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts here. I always appreciate your time. Love talking always, to you. I always appreciate talking to you and thanks for your passion about this. And it's great seeing you. And I look forward to talking anytime you want to get an opinion on something, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll try to do that. And, and I will say thank you for that. And, and the last thing on, on all of this, there are, there is so much going on in this, in the NFL right now. 
And I really do believe that part of uh, respectfully, the, the obligation of the owners and the general managers is to truly look at the evolution of this league. And again, not just continue to shoot from the hip, but to take all of our data that we have at our disposal now and utilize that. It will make everyone better. It will make organizations better. And I believe it will make the industry better. Good stuff. And you can hear more from Thomas weekly on the Sumer Sports Show with the aforementioned Eric Eager, a favorite of both of ours, that podcast available wherever you get your podcasts. And we will be back here again on Wednesday with more of this podcast with my girl Aditi Kinkobala, who had a great sideline report in Sunday's Dolphins-Texans game about Mike McDaniel and how he's pulled the best version of Tua out this year. Uh, It's a story about an under-talked-about part of coaching, in my opinion. The ability to get the most out of your players and the ability to key in on which approach is the right one for that. And I am really eager for Aditi to share more of that story. She also has an interesting sideline assignment for Week 13. She will be covering the Browns-Texans game in Houston, and obviously you know why that one's big. And I'm looking forward to discussing her research for that game as well. If you're not a subscriber to the show already, but you want to hear that episode, go ahead and hit that subscribe button now and it'll be waiting for you as soon as it's posted. Always love to hear your feedback as well. My Twitter handle is Lindsay underscore Rhodes. I'm Lindsay Rhodes NFL on Instagram. Big thanks to my guests today, Thomas Dimitrov, who is not on Twitter, and Tashawn Reed, who is. You can find him at Tashawn Reed. You can also find his writing on the Athletic website and his Raiders thoughts on the State of the Nation podcast. This podcast is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network, and the producer is the one and only wonderful Andrew Emmer. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you again on Wednesday. Serious XM Podcasts.